the Get Outside With Kids podcast with Jen and Kate, where we share lots of ideas and tips and inspiring guests to help you spend more time having adventures with your kids outside. Tonight, we've got a guest coming on, and she's an Ontario transplant just like me. Uh, She moved here to Vancouver for more opportunities in nature, unlike myself, who was not interested in nature at all when I first moved to Vancouver. But 10 years later, here we're going. You moved here just to be with your husband, to be with your partner, right? It was love, Jen. It was love. I just chased my boyfriend across the country, but he stuck around. Thankfully. Uh, <laughs> and here we are. Here we are 10 years later. And so what our guest Laura tonight, she moved out here to Vancouver and she's got this amazing science background that she's going to share with you. Uh, but we're really going to dive into this ep- episode is how her life shifted when her youngest daughter was diagnosed with a very rare disease. What we're really going to share tonight is the ways that we- Laura and and all of us really have discovered how inaccessible getting outside can be. Uh, When Laura had her second daughter named Lucy, uh, Lucy was diagnosed with a rare disease. Lucy's rare disease means that she does have a disability and she navigates the world using uh, mobility devices and a wheelchair. Um, It's really been eye-opening to to myself and to Kate and I know to many people listening into Lucy's journey about how inaccessible places can be, even places like schools and rec centers, places that you think should obviously be inclusive, oftentimes aren't. So be sure to listen in. There are going to be lots of links below at the end of this one for ways that all of us can advocate for more accessible spaces. Um, And I'm really excited to have her on the show here tonight. Laura, we are so excited to have you on the show tonight. It's taken us, I think, a couple of reschedules due to kids' illness. And I think your husband may be having a bit of a tumble down the stairs. But we're really excited that you can be here tonight with us. Thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. I'm excited that we finally made this happen too, and that nobody is currently injured or sick or needing my attention. Touch wood. It's a miracle. (laughs) It's 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 very rare. I actually feel like the biggest success this podcast is just getting three moms together at the same time on Zoom. Like if anything, it's it impressive. shows the logistics. It's it very is, impressive. It's actually the hardest part. So Laura, we'd love to ask you uh, just to get started here. Why is getting outside with kids important to you? Maybe uh, as an environmental educator, why is that important to you before you had kids? And how has that changed since having kids? I have always been an outdoorsy person. I grew up in a very free outdoorsy granola family and it shaped me to be the person I am and helped me to pursue biology and it helped me to pursue conservation biology and wanting to inspire others to protect our natural spaces and ultimately that's why I moved to the west coast because I'm originally from Ontario and I moved here so that I could be close to nature and so that my career could be focused in that. So it's always been a huge part of my life. And then when I had kids, it was just natural that it would be a huge part of their upbringing and our life together. Can you tell us a little bit, Laura? I was really interested to read about your grandpa. Can you tell us about your grandpa and the impact that he had on you growing up? Um, And maybe even how that's impacted how you're raising your two kids now. Yeah, He was a science teacher at our local high school, but he is a scientist by training and he was a jack of all nature trades. If there was a tree, he knew exactly what species it was. He knew how to identify every moss, every insect. He knew how to portage and canoe and plan multi-day trips. He knew how to catch his own fish and scale it and prepare it. He knew how to garden. We lived in a small town, but he turned his entire backyard into a farm, like a little mini farm. He had two cornrows. He had raspberry bush, he had a rhubarb bush, and he was just 
a huge part of my childhood. I spent a lot of time with my grandfather and he passed on all of his passion and knowledge and his appreciation for nature and what it brought to our lives and how it enriched our lives. And he was just an amazing man and really, really special to me. And I, I really think that helped to form the person that I am now. Now, Laura, you have two children similar in ages to our two children. And describe to us a little bit for you what that looks like for you getting outside as a family of four um, and navigating things a little bit differently now with your younger daughter. Explain to us how some of those, what that looks like navigating the world uh, using mobility aids, using a wheelchair. What does that look like? And what have you kind of learned along the way about how spaces aren't as accessible as they often should be? Yeah. So we have two children. Our older son is five. And when he came into our life, it was just like automatic. We went hiking. We did two-week road trip, camping trip. When he was an infant, we camped all summer. Uh, He learned how to ride a bike really early and he is fearless and he learned how to ski really early. And it's just, it was so much fun exploring the outdoors with him. And then when our daughter came along, we thought, great, we're going to add more to this. But very early on, uh, she was diagnosed with a rare disease And so she's disabled. And that means that how she gets outside and how we uh, function as a family got flipped completely upside down. And when we got that diagnosis, I mean, so many things go through your head. But honestly, one of the first things that went through my head was how are we going to live the standard of lifestyle that we had envisioned for our family? And that included camping like all of her machines need to be plugged in at night so could we ever go camping again and um, if she can't walk how do we go hiking how does she go biking how does she go skiing how do we go surfing and doing all those things that we'd already established as a family of three and it, it was one of the first places that my head went to after we got the diagnosis so it was it was very daunting in the beginning, and I remember bringing her home from the hospital, and we went to the beach, because, you know, it was the pandemic, and outdoor beach area was the perfect spot to be. And we love going to the beach. That's why we live in one of the reasons why we live in Vancouver. But I looked around at the beach, and she was only like five weeks old here. But I am somebody who worries about the future constantly. And I looked around at the beach and I did not see a single disabled person, physically disabled. And I didn't see a single wheelchair. And it kind of crushed me that people like Lucy weren't existing or I didn't see them existing in these outdoor spaces that I loved. So starting from that that point, we had a lot of kind of climbing back to the life we had envisioned. And it came little by little. And of course, you know, how you act with a newborn is so different than how you act with a toddler outside. And we have learned a lot about what it takes to get Lucy outside and what sort of barriers we have to overcome in order to get her outside. But I will say that we've been pretty successful in finding a way to integrate her into the same adventures that we used to take as a family of three. And... I see the benefits for her. I see the benefits for our son. We see the benefits for our whole family. And so it's not an easy journey to get a disabled child or a disabled person outside and into all the, you know, epic adventures that the West Coast 
brings, but it's been worthwhile so far. And I think we're going to keep pushing forward so that we can make it happen as long as we possibly can. Laura, it's, I mean, it's a a really full on moment, obviously, what you just described sitting at the beach. And I think, you know, it's something I've been thinking about recently. When you look around at the places where you hang out, where you recreate, where you kid, where your kids play, and the absence of people with disabilities, of visible disabilities, is not because they're not a part of our society. It's because our society has created spaces that are totally inaccessible. And so you look at the playgrounds around us and you look at the wood chips that a wheelchair would not be able to get over, or you look at the fact that there's nothing at at chair height anyway for a kid to do in that playground. And the problem is absolutely nothing to do with the disability and everything to do with the design of our world. What have you, like in the sort of urban settings that, you know, around where you live, what kind of facilities are there? What have you found about playgrounds? Like, are there places? <laughs> I would hope, I would really hope in a place like Vancouver, where I think people are generally, you know, a little further ahead in their thinking than some of the other parts of the world. But what kind of places exist for playgrounds and that kind of um, that kind of play for a kid who's using a wheelchair? Yeah, you would think um, <laughs> that there would be a lot of opportunities in a city like Vancouver. Uh, however, it's it's a wide spectrum. And the only fully accessible park locally is in Surrey. There's only what? one and it's in Surrey. Wow. Yes. For those who don't know, Surrey is not close to downtown no. Vancouver where you live, right? Like no. that's not close at all. No, we've been to it once and it took us over an hour to get there. And there have been new parks built near me or, or much closer than Surrey. But the priority has never been put on making it accessible. And so we haven't truly found our like go-to park yet for Lucy. Uh, there's a lot of different factors to think about when it comes to accessible parks, but there there isn't a perfect there isn't a perfect park yet. And unfortunately, I think that from the research that I've started to do about it, and I'm not a, a urban planning expert, obviously. Uh, but as a parent to a disabled child, I kind of have to dive in and become an expert in some of these advocacy things now because it's not okay for me to not be able to take her to the park. It's it's something that's on my radar. And as I dive more into it, it comes down to funding and to how expensive building accessible parks are and how as a society, we are not putting a priority on that. And I do think a lot of that comes down to what you said, Kate, where you can look around and maybe people who are making these decisions look around and they think, well, I don't see any disabled children trying to access the park. And that's really um, a chicken and an egg situation because they're not able to be in those spaces and it's not a safe and welcoming space for them in the first place. So right now, there's not many great options for us to go to the park. We have some that we make do with because they have a minimal level of accessibility, but uh, there's a big room for improvement there. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, Kate and I, right before uh, you jumped on, Laura, were saying, uh, you know, the first kind of experience, uh, you know, the first time you're out with a stroller, I really found and you're out with a stroller pushing a stroller. And I really was all of a sudden noticing, oh my God, there are stairs everywhere. Stairs in places where there don't even need to be stairs, like just like aesthetic stairs, like, you know, in like a complex or while you're walking around. And I was recognizing how frustrating that would be with a stroller. 
Never mind, of course, how much more frustrating that would be for someone navigating with a wheelchair, with a walker, or with any kind of mobility aid. Um, and I think that was really the first, for me personally, eye-opening to realize how many places are inaccessible. And to your point, you start to go when you're navigating the world with a stroller, with a wheelchair, whatever that might look like, you automatically start to bookmark like, okay, the rec center nearest, yes, that has the push button doors, things are wide enough, it's got a good bathroom, I can get in with a stroller, with a wheelchair. Um, but other places aren't like that. There are other places that were very hard to go and really frustrating. All of a sudden I would look and go, well, how, how can someone get in here? There's no button to push. And so I can navigate, you know, awkwardly with a stroller and a toddler, but someone in a wheelchair might not be able to navigate this. And that's unfair and inaccessible for them to have that experience. Um, and it does come down to funding and how we need to make that more of a priority so that every one of all abilities is able to access these spaces. Absolutely. And to your point that creating something that's accessible doesn't just benefit disabled people. It also benefits a wider population. And that's why we have like curb drops and that's why we have automatic doors. And um, it, it's, it's kind of a cascading effect. Just thinking about, you know, your, your experiences camping in particular, Laura, you know, I have seen, there are so many amazing people advocating for inclusion um, and accessibility in the outdoors and some of the very uninformed comments that I see coming in are, well, but the outdoors are for everyone and there's no one preventing, <laughs> I seriously read this, there's no one preventing anyone from getting out there. For people who are sort of like, well, you know, what is, like, if you know how to go camping, why couldn't you just go camping? Can you kind of take us through, like, the actual logistics of what the challenge is there for your family if you want to take your whole family of four camping together at, say, a provincial park in BC? I think that that is an issue where equality is not equity and equity is not equality. Because, yes. <laughs> yes, you can provide, like, the same outdoor space to everyone and just say, come and get it. But if you don't have the means to access that same space, then it's not really available to you at all. So for us, camping, you know, with Lucy's specific needs, we need electricity at a campsite, which is not impossible to find. But you know, if you've reserved camping anywhere in BC in the last probably 10 years, you know that it's like <laughs> winning a lottery to get any spot. The stress is like <laughs> the next stress is oh real. <laughs> yeah. Um, and then add an extra an extra layer on there that your spot you can't just take any spot. You need to have that electrical spot. And then Right now, Lucy is a toddler, so we can maneuver her in a lot of different ways. But as she grows up and gets heavier, uh, we'll rely more on her her ability to move herself around in her wheelchair. And that means that we need to have pathways that are accessible or a platform itself for camping that's accessible. And that, again, is adding another layer of the criteria of what you have to book camping and it just creates a lot of different barriers because you're narrowing that search to the one needle in a giant camping haystack it is a giant friggin haystack and you know for people who don't live in bc they might be like what's the big deal just book a campsite it's like no 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 you've got to be on at 7 a.m and if you're not on at 7 a.m by 701 all the spots that you want for the weekend of your choice are gone and if you want to go camping with a friend 
and you both are trying to book a site. It's just impossible. So the idea that, you know, there are only a couple of sites, I'm guessing, in a very large campsite that you would be able to to sort of access, that <laughs> sounds horrible. And I work pretty closely with some parks agencies. So, you know, that's going to be maybe I yeah. raise this with them again. Hey, what are you yeah. doing to support families to get outside? Because you have just as much right as anybody else to book one of those sites. And it should be, you'd think, you would hope it would be easy. <laughs> Yeah. And I think that, I think where I struggle is like, I enjoy nature, nature, and I don't want nature to be paved over. And I don't even want that even for Lucy, but there, there's a balance and there's got to be a balance. And I think that having some spots that are a little bit more accessible, being made available to people who need them to be accessible versus them being widely available to the public and an accessible person has to find it. Um, I think that that's a huge difference and would make those opportunities more prevalent or easy to attain. So, Laura, we're coming up to the holidays here and one mm-hmm. of the things I've been thinking about and I know that you care really deeply about, We've I've known you since before you had kids, I know that this is part of your values, but like, the supporting local businesses, supporting small businesses and reducing waste, you know, these are all kind of core things. But what I found so amazing about your kind of journey after Lucy's diagnosis was the support of small businesses for your cause. And I think it's something I was just talking to Jen about this. I was like, everybody talks about, oh, you should shop local, you should shop local. And like, yeah, because you keep the money in your community and whatever. But I'm also like, you should shop for mum-owned businesses because the good that they do in the world is so amazing because they care about the things that mums care about. <laughs> Can you tell us a little bit about what that support from like those small mum-owned businesses has been like for you and how it's kind of impacted maybe, I, I know you were kind of already on this journey anyway, but impacted your sort of buying decisions as a parent related to clothes, toys, all of these kinds of things. Yeah, I think that community is enriched by small businesses and definitely like parent-owned or mom-owned businesses for sure. It's nice to share values with the people that you're buying from and you're supporting. And we were very fortunate when we were... Um, fundraising for Lucy and trying to get medical treatment for her, we were super supported by small businesses, local small businesses, and I'm a very loyal person. So I feel like so protective of them now. And um, that's always where I go to first, if I need clothing for the kids, if I need shoes, if I need a gift for somebody, and it's definitely where I go at the holiday too. Feel free to shout them out here. We can drop in the links to all these amazing accounts. I know they've got some beautiful clothes. The reason I know they have beautiful clothes is because Mm -hmm. Laura's daughter is my favorite influencer in terms of what she wears. (laughs) She is my absolute style icon. She's what, two and a half. And every time I send Laura a message, every time I see her, I'm like, this outfit, it's to die for. Like, look at what she's done with that bow. It's amazing. So if you want to shout out any of these brands, we'd be happy to link to them. If you're looking for ideas for holiday gifts and that, and you can support some of these great businesses too. A few of like our favorites are Simply Merino, um, which is a parent uh, run um, Merino wool clothing company. And they don't just do kids stuff. And they're like the best base layers, especially if you want to get your kids outside. It's what both my kids wear when we're going skiing, when we're going hiking in the winter and fall. And even just when we're going to the park it, underneath their money buddies. I love Bean Sprouts consignment shop on Main Street. They have like the best stuff. Petit Verin 
is an amazing eco-friendly clothing company that was super supportive as well. And they make the most gorgeous and well-made kids clothes. Uh, Jackson Lennon Co., they were incredible (laughs) throughout our fundraising. And also, uh, Lucy is often wearing their clothes. And so if you're appreciating what she's wearing. That's I am. Totally I appreciate it every. Laura, you know this. Yeah. I appreciate it every day. And then I'm like, and yeah. what you've done with her hair? I just, I wish I could get away with like pigtails and a little. I cute know it's really dress. cute, right? <laughs> yeah. And hey, folks, their shoes are amazing, and they actually fit over Lucy's orthotics. So I'm always striving to find something that's like cute and stylish, and also works with her adaptive gear because a lot of adaptive gear is not beautiful. So um, I want to make it as beautiful as possible. And they made their shoes and they go right over Lucy's AFOs and her SMOs. So they're they're, they're my go-to. They're my favorite. I will just keep buying them over and over again. <laughs> the other thing, Laura, I wanted to ask you about is I imagine that, that getting a diagnosis of a rare disability, I don't know, 20 years ago um, and trying to find others to connect to would have been challenging but you know through through social media and through connections through instagram and other platforms it's actually possible to connect with others can you tell us a little bit about that kind of community what it means to you and if any of those friendships have kind of transformed from instagram dms to actually real world world friends now and uh, why that's important to you yeah i think that uh, having a rare diagnosis is extremely isolating and parenting a disabled child feels very isolating as well. But the world of social media is a pretty wonderful place. And it definitely has allowed me to connect with other parents. And honestly, most importantly, adults living with the rare disease that that Lucy has. Um, And that has taught me a lot. It's definitely showed me what's possible, what life is like. And I really seek out parents, caregivers of this community, as well as disabled adults. And that's where I've learned about a lot of amazing adaptive gear that um, help get people outside. Like there's these really cool wheelchairs called not a wheelchair that are hiking wheelchairs, and they go on any terrain. And they are so, so cool. And I could watch videos of people hiking in these wheelchairs forever. And uh, I think that that's something that I've already started to plan and budget out of like, how much money can I allocate towards Lucy's like outdoor adaptive gear? And and connecting with these people has uh, just been really great for me. And then I can also see it being really great for Lucy because I want her to grow up in a world where she sees herself in other people and where she fit feels like she fits in. So I've definitely connected uh, really well with a lot of other Canadian families. And we have already had get-togethers. We've flown across the country to see each other and um, to have our children play together. And that's been like a really special experience. So as, as much as social media sometimes gets a bad rep, like it 
has been instrumental in helping us create a community for ourselves and for Lucy. There you go, Jen. Look, you Jen works in social media, so she's, you know, for the it's group good things. Place. Right, Jen? Right. Uh, it's a mostly good place. It's like 50-50 up there, but it is always, it's always great when uh, you can find people to connect with and find your community. And we've talked a lot about this on the podcast about how important it is to find your people, whoever they are, to help you get outside, to help you navigate the challenges of parenting day to day. How can we help children like Lucy? How can we help advocate? And what are some steps that we can take that everyone can take to to lobby people, to to raise our voices, to raise money? Um, where are some places that we can go to help advocate for more inclusive spaces? Or what would you like? What would you like other people to know about some of those challenges and how we can be helpful to that community? Uh, I think like step number one is getting involved in your community and the community decisions. So when a park is being built, they often put renderings out. They ask the community's opinion, and it's really important that the people who are advocating that accessibility needs to be a core part of a new outdoor space has to be more than just the families with disabled children. It has to be everyone. And accessible places do benefit everyone. I visited an accessible park in Calgary, and it was the busiest park I have ever seen, and there were maybe... 10 people with wheelchairs, but there were a hundred kids just having the best time because it was a fun place to, to play. So realizing that it, it, it does benefit you as well. And then making sure you're being a good ally to these families and you're speaking up about that as a priority. There are a few organizations that I know of that are not for profits that take donations and also volunteers. One of them British Columbia Mobility Opportunities Society, or BCMOS. Uh, and they run really cool programs like accessible paddleboarding. Every single day in False Creek, they run accessible paddleboarding. They have accessible kayaks and they have wheelchair paddleboards and they take people out in False Creek. Uh, they also have um, hiking wheelchairs where you physically pull the person sitting in the wheelchair and they, you can rent those out. You can also buy them from them. Um, and they host events trying to encourage people to have opportunities to be outdoors and to have access to those spaces. They also have like a lot of resources on what are the accessible or most accessible hikes in the community. And they would be a great way, a great place to donate your time, donate your, your funds. Yeah, those are two off the top of my head. Laura, I know you, you don't like to be described as an influencer because that's not what you are. <laughs> you don't like. And I know that you also, if I were to say I find you to be super inspiring, I know you'd also shake your head and say, no, 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 no. I'm just a parent. I'm doing what I have to do. But the reality is that you are and uh, a lot of what you have gone through has, and I, I know loads of people, so many people are who have been inspired by you. And by that, I mean inspired to just think about the world differently in a new way because of Lucy and seeing, you know, as parents of young kids, the empathy that we have, you know, at the same point in our lives, it's just an experience that that a lot of people have has really, really hit home for them. And so, one of the things that I absolutely recognize is that it is not your role to educate every able-bodied person in the world. It is not your role to speak on behalf of Lucy. And I think from that, I've really taken that as like, well, 
gee, okay, it's on me. I have to do more to teach myself. And so Jen and I were talking about this before the podcast. We'd love to drop into our show notes um, and we will drop into our show notes a bunch of the links for things that how we're teaching ourselves about, for example, the right language to be using and choosing out books that have people who look in a whole lot of different ways, including in wheelchairs um, and some of our favorite ones that we've been reading with our kids. And another thing that I think is really easy step to do is if you look through your Instagram account and every or your Facebook account and everybody who you follow looks like you, then you're doing it wrong Uh, (laughs) because you're not going to hear from different accounts. You're not going to hear the language that people use when they describe themselves um, in different ways and how, how that, you know, can influence how you should be speaking about disability in particular. So, I would love to drop in some, some great accounts including yours because you're not an influencer, but you're very influential and awesome. Um, And (laughs) that's one way for you to start looking around you. And when you start seeing, you know, you read books with your kids that have kids who look different to them, who, who get around the world differently than they do, then you look at your play spaces, you look at the parks and you think, well, where is this in real life? And I feel like that's a step I'm trying to take for myself. And I know Jen, you're doing the same thing too. So we'll come up with uh, our kind of lists of our favorite resources that we've been learning from. Um, and would encourage you if you're listening in and if, if you haven't really thought about this, if you haven't had to go through an experience like this, what can you do? Like, what can you think about? Can you Is your daycare accessible? Have you ever talked to your daycare staff about whether a kid with a disability would be able to come in there? Um, can you ask some questions? Of, you know, I used to volunteer on a parts committee in my local city. Could you ask questions there about, well, how would a kid in a wheelchair get into this playground and, and what would they do if they could? And really thinking that because it is not the role of somebody with a disability or a parent of somebody with a disability to, to educate all of us and to show us how to do it. It's our role as just good members of our community to do that. So, um, you're definitely influential, Laura. I won't use the term influencer. But uh, yeah, Jen, if you had any other ideas in there for things that you're doing with your kids as well that you'd love to share too, we'll, we'll drop in some of those links. Yeah, no, thanks, Kate, for sharing that. Um, I think a big one for me too is how we talk to our children about it. I feel like when we grew up in our generation, we didn't talk about disabled children as openly as frankly as we should, right? It was a lot more like hush, hush, and we, we used different language back then. And so I'm really being a lot more cognizant of these are children who are disabled. You say it point blank, you say it how it is. And otherwise, we say what's different, we say what's the same. And I feel like we can speak a lot more openly and honestly about it. And I think to Kane's point, like there's so much better representation now. We still have a long way to go, absolutely. But I am more mindful of like when I look back of our generation of books, uh, there wasn't a lot of diversity in books back then. But when I look to more recent authors, I am relieved to see that there are children in wheelchairs, there's children of all different abilities and colors, and being more mindful of what we're choosing, the language of the books, and actually pointing it out in the stories as well, like not just kind of glossing over those pages with children with disabilities, but taking the time to talk to your children through that. Do they have p- people in wheelchair at their schools? What do they notice? Um, is the, Do they have any challenges at their school in terms of doors that don't open correctly? How are children in wheelchairs treated differently or the same and things to be mindful of as our children are getting older. Um, we're just navigating the school system you know, for the very first time ourselves and how different that might be for a parent of someone who, when, when Lucy goes to school for her very first year and what that might be like for you. Um, and thinking ahead now, like, how do we make sure that school is going to be a great space for Lucy today? And how can we as parents make sure that wherever Lucy goes to school, whatever her journey looks like, we can already advocate for her by by speaking out in our communities. 
Um, so thank you so much, Laura, for being here tonight. Um, we know we're all super busy moms. And I think we were all just laughing at the beginning, like between husbands falling downstairs and sick parents and sick kids. It has been a journey to get all three of us to connect here. Um, Laura, maybe you can tell us, but just to finish up here, yeah, what, what are your plans for getting outside in the winter, this upcoming winter? And uh, what kind of activities are you planning to do with your kids to explore the outdoors? Well, we are leaving tomorrow to go to Tofino. <gasps> Ooh! Yes. I'm Although excited. if you've listened to our pod, if you're listening to our podcast, Jen and I have had generally horrific experiences in Tofino, but that's just us. We're doomed there. So for you, you're going to have an amazing time, right, Jen? Yes. <laughs> yes. Don't listen to that episode before you go. Listen to it after you come back. Oh, I think I, I think I already did. Um, <laughs> I don't have that experience Good. there. You're um, not doomed. No, I, we've been fortunate to go at least once a year to Tofino. So we frequent it pretty often and we love that space so much and it'll be interesting this time because last time Lucy was there she was a baby um you know in a carrier and moving her around that space was much like you'd move around any one-year-old and now she is two and a half and so we will see how that changes but one thing I love about the beaches there is they are so compact so uh, there's a lot that you can do in that space. And I'm hoping that we'll be able to get out and tide pool. When in doubt, we have an amazing hiking backpack that we utilize to get Lucy into all sorts of amazing spaces. I'm not sure she'll put a wetsuit on this time and get in the water, but our son definitely will. And we're bringing our boogie board and we'll be surfing. Um, but we'll definitely enjoy some hikes while we're there. And then this winter in general, we are going to try our best to get Lucy on skis. So there's a Vancouver Adaptive Snow Sport Society. And most of the things are for five-year-olds plus. But <laughs> I'm going to find a way to get Lucy on a sled ski. Uh, they seem like a really amazing organization. And they do lessons. They do clubs. They do camps. And they also rent out their equipment. So I was thinking, how hard can it be for me to learn how to be on a sit ski? And then I'll just get her on there with me. But, awesome. you know, maybe that sounds like an irresponsible parenting move. We will do it as safely as possible. But it is our goal to get out on the ski slopes with her this winter. And if not that, we will enjoy some snow hiking with our snowshoes and again, our trusty hiking backpack, which has been instrumental in getting her outdoors so far. Wow. Okay. Well, even more kudos to you for getting on tonight with us, given that you're going away tomorrow. Hope you have a wonderful trip <laughs> and we look forward to hearing about your snow adventures. Thank you so much, Laura, for coming on to the show tonight. We're going to have a heap of links to drop into our show notes, so make sure you go check them out. You can also follow us over on Instagram at Get Outside With Kids, where we drop lots of cool information about our upcoming episodes and adventures we've been having outside with our kids. We also love to hear what you thought of the episode. Episode. So if you want to send us a DM over there um, and uh, share your thoughts or your feedback on the episodes, I'd love to hear from you. And we'll be back again next week with another episode of Get Outside With Kids.